John 15, John 15, verses 1 to 8. John 15, verses 1 to 8. And let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning we come boldly before you, not on our merit, not in ourselves, but even as we have just sung, in the blood of Christ and his righteousness. We have no merit in ourselves. We have no hope in ourselves. We are utterly, entirely sinful. And yet Jesus Christ died for us. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Our hope is his blood and his righteousness, even as we have proclaimed in song this morning. And, and as we turn our attention to your word now this morning, to John 15, we pray that we would see these same truths. That it is not in us, but it is in Christ alone. And may we abide in him. May you be honored in all that is said and done. I pray that you would give me boldness, give me authority this morning, that your spirit would work through your word as I proclaim the truth of the word of God. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to spend our time this morning here in the first eight verses of John 15. Even as I was reading it, it might be a familiar passage. I believe it's probably a familiar passage to many of us who have grown up in or around a church. But as we turn our attention to John 15 this morning, I simply want to, I want to set the stage. I want to remind us where we are in the book of John, where we are in the Passion Week, everything that is going on. You may I remember beginning back in John 13, we found ourselves in the upper room with Jesus and his disciples. In John 13, 30, Judas leaves this intimate setting with the intent of going out and betraying Jesus. Jesus sends him out. What you do, go and do quickly. With Judas leaving the scene now in John 13, 31, Jesus begins his farewell discourse. These are his final instructions to his true followers. And the main subject of this discourse, as we've been seeing over the last several weeks, is the reality that Jesus is about to leave him. His time has come. His glorification is at hand. Understandably, this news fills the disciples with confusion and with fear. What do you mean that you're leaving? And we can understand that, can we not? How often does the, the unknown fill us with fear? A simple change, a move, whatever it is, fills us with fear. It's unknown. What's going to happen? They've grown so accustomed, so, so comfortable with Jesus. If he is leaving, what in the world is going to happen? They're terrified of the unknown. But in the face of their fear, as we saw last week, Jesus promises, Jesus promises them peace. Trust me. 
He's leaving them, but he's not abandoning them. He will come back for them, and he will give them all that they need to thrive in his absence. We saw that last week at the end of John 14, the promise of the Holy Spirit who will indwell and empower them. Jesus is leaving them, but he's not leaving them alone. In his absence, he gives them all that they need and he promises to return for them. As we come to John 15 this morning, the question shifts. It shifts from how are are we going to survive without you to what are we supposed to do without you? They're coming to terms, I think, somewhat with the reality that Jesus is leaving. But what does that mean for us? What are we supposed to do? The summer before my sophomore year of high school, my parents bought some land on which to build a house. That summer, my dad saw an opportunity for me to to learn a a skill. And so he asked the the foreman of this group that was this, this... whatever group of people that was building our house, uh, can my son work with you? You don't have to pay him. I will pay him. I just want him to learn the experience. Can he work with you this summer? Sure, they let me. And so I, that was my job that summer. I, I did not get a normal job. My dad paid me to work with the crew that was building our new home. If you know me, obviously I didn't learn very much because <laughs> I am not a handyman. But I carried boards, I picked up trash, I did other basic duties to help out. I did whatever they told me to do. As long as they gave me instructions, I was good to go. I could do anything. As long as they said, nail that board, or do that, or carry this over there. I could do that. But if this crew would have left halfway through the summer and told me, just finish it yourself. I feel like you, you know what's going on, you finish it. I would have no idea what to do. It doesn't matter if they left me every single tool possible. I wouldn't know what to do with it. No matter how equipped I was, it would have done me no good. Because I don't know what to do. I would have been directionless and hopeless. And as we come to John 15, that's where the disciples is. Jesus has promised another helper. He has promised to, to return. He's promised to fully equip them for all that they need. But the question is, well, what are we supposed to do? What is the duty of a disciple? What will it look like for us to be successful? And this morning... In this passage, these are the two questions that we are going to answer. What is the duty of a disciple, and what is the secret to success in the Christian life? What is the duty of a disciple, and what does success in the Christian life look like? What are we supposed to do? As we look at this passage, we'll see the true vine and true disciples. First thing we see here in John 1, 15, 1 to 4 is the true vine. As John 14 comes to a close, so does their time in the upper room. I mentioned from John 13 on, we've been in the upper room. 
Now as we come to John, the end of John 14, we come to the end of that time. As John 14, 31 ends, it ends with this command. Arise and let us go from here. It's likely that the conversation has now shifted. As we come to John 15, the conversation has shifted from the upper room to the street as they are making their way through Jerusalem toward the Mount of Olives. In John 15:1, Jesus continues the conversation. It's the same conversation that we've had or been a part of over the last two chapters. It's just in a different location as they are walking through Jerusalem. They're making their way towards the Mount of Olives, continuing to talk. And here Jesus gives a powerful word picture, a powerful illustration. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. I am the true vine. This is the last of seven I am statements that we've seen in the book of John. They're powerful statements. They're they're statements that declare Jesus' divinity and his authority. So far through the book of John, Jesus has proclaimed, I am the bread of life. John 6, I am the light of the world. John 8, I am the door. John 10, also John 10, I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. John 11, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, and now in John 15, I am the true vine. But this statement in particular is pregnant with meaning. I am the true vine. If you're like me, that word true might catch your attention. I am the true vine. That, that implies that there's been other vines. What, what is Jesus talking about? Why does he clarify, I am the true vine? Well, in the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, regularly, Israel is often referred to as a vine, as God's vine. In fact, I went through this week, and you, you see it in Psalm 80, 9 to 16. In Isaiah 5, verses 1 to 7, Isaiah 27, 2. In Jeremiah 2, 21, Jeremiah 12, 10. Ezekiel 15, 1 to 8. Ezekiel 17, 1 to 21. Ezekiel 19, 10 to 14. Hosea 10, 1 to 2. This is a regular occurrence. It's a regular picture for, for Israel. They are a vine. An Israelite would have understood that picture. In all these passages, God, it is God who, who as a gardener, has provided for them and given them all that they need. He has set them up perfectly as his people for success. They are my vine. And yet, every passage, every single one of those that I read off, every passage in the Old Testament that refers to Israel as a vine is a negative passage. How can that be? You just said that in all of these, God is, is, is put forth as this great gardener. He's greatly provided for them. He's given them all that they need. He has. And yet every passage they fail. He's greatly provided them. He, yet they either fail to bear fruit or they bear bad fruit. Israel as a vine, they are useless They are good for nothing except to burn as a dead branch. 
They are useless. They are good for nothing. In fact, almost every single mention of Israel as God's vine in the Old Testament is tied not just to their failure to produce good fruit, but to the coming harsh judgment because of their failure. It's with this background that Jesus steps forward here and he says, he takes this idea and he flips it on its head. I am the true vine. You have failed. I will triumph. You brought judgment and death. I will bring life. This is more than just a picture. It's more than just an illustration. This is a proclamation. I am the true vine. Jesus triumphs where Israel failed. He is the true vine. This ties to something that Jesus said earlier in this very conversation. In John 14, 6, another I am statement. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's not moved on from this statement. He's still expounding upon these truths. A vine produces life to its branches. And while Israel produced bad fruit and death, Christ will produce good fruit because he is the life. There's only one life. It's in and through Jesus. He will continue to expound on this very point in this passage, but, but here he continues with his illustration. Not only is Jesus the true vine, not only will Jesus be successful where Israel failed, not only will he triumph, but the Father is the vine dresser. He's the vine dresser. Notice that the Father is not passive in this illustration. He's active. The vine dresser cares for the vine. He cares for the branches. What's interesting is that we saw this same truth in, in the Old Testament, in those passages that I read, in Psalm, and Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and Hosea. God was the vine dresser. He had put them in a beautiful garden. He had provided them with all that they need, and yet they failed to produce fruit. They produced bad fruit. The problem was not the vine dresser. The problem was the vine. The vine dresser has not changed between Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea. It's the same vine dresser. The difference is the vine. Christ, as the true vine, will produce fruit. It's not the vine dresser that has changed. It's the vine itself. In John 15, 2, we see what it is that the Father, as vine dresser, does. And notice, if you will, here that there are two different types of branches. Branches that do not bear fruit and branches that do bear fruit. First, look at the branches that do not bear fruit. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, or the father, the vine dresser, takes away. Every branch that does not bear fruit. Now, don't get caught up on those two words there, every branch in me that does not bear fruit. We just spent time last week, we talked about what it means that we are in Christ as believers, what that means for us. As, as Jesus says in John 14, 
I am in the Father, the Father is in me. So you are in, so I am in you and you are in me. In fact, every, uh, every instance of being in Christ, in John, and, and then and zooming out even more in the New Testament, refers to believers. But here in John 15, 2, the context and the specific contrast that Jesus is making is clear that these branches were never truly in Christ. They may have looked like they were in him. They may have looked like a part of this vine, but they were never truly a part of it. These are those who align themselves with Jesus outwardly, but never truly believe. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. He cuts off. He removes. Because they are not truly in me. It's a scary thought for us, is it not? Because these branches look good. They claim to be a part of this vine. But they're not. They may have associated with him, they may have even claimed him, but they were never in him. This is not a new concept in the book of John. We see this back even at the end of John 2. If you remember, there's a crowd who claims Jesus, but Jesus does not claim them because he knows their heart. He knows that they have not truly believed. Or even more immediately, in this very context, you have Judas Iscariot. One by, by who all outward appearances looked to be a believer. And yet right now, in the midst of this very conversation, he is at the temple bargaining for Jesus' life. So in caring for the vine, the vine dresser takes these branches away. He removes them. He cuts them off. Yet at the same time, there are also branches that do produce fruit. Some branches he cuts off. Some branches he cuts back. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. He prunes. It's kind of a surprising word there. If you're honest, if you're reading this for the first time, you'd expect probably a different word. You expect something like every branch that, that does not bear fruit, he, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he, he blesses. Every branch that bears fruit goes on to, to thrive. That's not what it says. It says every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. He prunes. Notice two things here. First, notice what he does. Notice why he does it. First, he does it. What he does is he prunes it. This is not a fun or a painless process for the branch, but it is necessary. Pruning, as many of you know, is the practice of cutting and removing diseased or damaged parts from the plant for the health of the plant. It involves cutting 
but it is purposeful. It takes a skilled hand of a caring vine dresser. Pruning does not involve mindless cutting or slashing that would cause harm to the plant. It is not, you know, giving your, your kid a knife, just saying, go to town. Just cut anything. It's purposeful. It's skilled. It's painful, but it's loving. Pruning involves careful and precise cuts that are good for the plant. It is a painful process with a purposeful and productive end. Second, notice the end goal. Why? Why does he do this? Why does he prune branches that are bearing fruit? That they may bear more fruit. That a fruitful plant may bear more fruit. The capability of growth comes through the precise cuts of a loving vine dresser. The implication here is simple. Without the vine, there is no life. Without the vine dresser, there is no growth. I think we, we, for the most part, understand the necessity of pruning a plant. But it's important for us to understand what Jesus is saying here for us. He's not just giving gardening tips. He's talking about the Christian life. And in the Christian life, growth will often come with pain as our loving Father cuts away all the things that would hinder fruit-bearing. This cutting, this pruning is painful, but it is loving and it's caring. It is not easy. It is not fun, but it is necessary and it is loving. Or to put it another way, from another well-known passage, James 1, count it all joy. Notice where James 1 starts. Count it all joy. Choose to have joy. My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Fruit! Steadfastness! And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Brothers and sisters, trust the pruning hand of your loving Father. It may hurt now, but it is precise and it is purposeful and it is accomplishing God's purpose in your life. He is preparing you for growth. In John 15, 3, he moves on. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Here he gives his disciples reassurance and then he calls them to action. You are already clean because of the words that I have spoken to you. What's very interesting to note here, and we don't see it in our English Bibles, but in the original language, the words prune from verse 2 and the words clean, the word clean in verse 3, are related words. It is necessary to be pruned to set you up for more fruit. And as the conversation moves on, he says, you are already clean. You have already been prepared and ready. Disciples, you are primed and ready to produce fruit. Why? Because of the words which I have spoken. 
because of what I have taught you, because I have encouraged you, because I've given you all that you need. Believe my word, obey my word, and you will believe, and you will bear fruit. Doesn't mean you won't be pruned again in the future. But you're already clean now. You're ready. You are ready. This, this is a reassuring word to his disciples. I am leaving. I've given you all that you need. What are we going to do? Just know that you are ready. You are primed for success. Trust me. You are already clean because I have prepared you, because of the word which I have spoken to you. It's a powerful word. In fact, note that because that will come up again later. He'll say again just a few verses, abide in me and my words abiding in you. This pruning happens through the word of God, so, so keep that in mind. That's what he says to them here. Believe my word, obey my word, and you will bear fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me. Abide in me and I in you. And here we finally come to the central point of this passage, the need to abide in Christ. It's the introduction of the word abide in this passage, but it's not the introduction of the need to abide in Christ in John. You may remember back in John 8, 31, as Jesus is teaching in the temple, we are told that many Jews believed in him. Jesus addressed these new believers with this idea, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. What we see back in John 8.31 and what we see here in John 15.4 is that true disciples abide in Christ, the true vine. In fact, look what he goes on to say in verse, 15, in verse 4. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Abiding in Christ is not just something that a disciple should do. Abiding in Christ is what a disciple must do. You have to abide in Christ. Apart from Christ, you cannot bear fruit. In fact, even deeper, the deeper meaning there is not only can you not bear fruit, but apart from Christ, you cannot live. That's what we see throughout this entire passage. The connection is clear. The branch that is not bearing fruit very simply is not living. If you are a living branch, you are a fruit-producing branch. If you are not a fruit-producing branch, you are not a living branch. You need me to live. You need me to thrive. To live is to bear fruit. True disciples bear fruit because true disciples abide in Christ. But here I think we need to, to pause and to address that word abide. So often in church we'll use words and, and it sounds good, but we may not really understand what we mean by those words. What do we mean, very simply, to abide in Christ? The word abide itself carries the idea of to continue. 
It's the same thing that Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.14, as for you, continue or abide in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. In 2 Timothy 3.14, to abide or continue in the truth is to live according to the truth. It is to not stray from true doctrine. Likewise, to abide in Christ is to continue in Christ. Growing up in South Carolina, in Greenville, people just assumed that South Carolina is all beach. We were actually at the top of the state. We were in the mountain, near the mountains. And there were hiking trails all around. And as you go to these trails, there's all these signs. And these signs say, stay on the trail. Abide on the trail. Do not stray from the trail. That's the idea here. Stay in Christ. Abide. Continue. Trust. Not just for salvation, but for every day and every situation. It is to live according to who you are in Christ. To abide in Christ is to take the truth and apply it to your life and to live according to who you are in Christ. In fact, that's exactly what we see in verses 5 to 8. And Jesus continues to expound upon this. True disciples. Verse 5, Jesus explains the illustration he's just given. In fact, he almost quotes it verbatim. I am the vine, you are the branches. After what we've seen in John, that makes sense that Jesus would repeat it time and time again. He's continually misunderstood. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Notice here that there is no question of whether those who abide in Christ will produce fruit. They will. He who abides in me might produce fruit. He who abides in me, if he tries really hard, he'll bear a little bit of fruit and then I'll bear the rest. That's not what it says. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I am him bears much fruit. It's a given. Those who abide in Christ produce fruit. Notice also that to abide in Christ is to have Christ also abide in you. To be in Christ is to have Christ and all that he is. In fact, what we find here is both a command and a promise. Abide in Christ, you will abide in me. Abiding in Christ is both something that you as a believer are commanded to do and something that you as a believer are guaranteed to do, are promised. If Christ is in you, he will never leave you. He will never let you go. If you are in Christ, you must also never let him go. He will continue in you. You must continue in him. You must abide in Christ. And if you are truly in Christ, you will abide in Christ. If Christ abides in you and you abide in Christ, you will bear fruit. It is guaranteed. Without Christ, you can do nothing. Without Christ, you are dead. There's nothing that you can do, and yet with Christ, there is nothing that you cannot do. 
To be without Christ is to have nothing. To be with Christ is to have everything. And here I think it's good to, to stop and to pause and talk about this idea of fruit. We talked about what it meant to abide in Christ, but what is this fruit that he keeps talking about? You will bear fruit. What is fruit? It's a concept that we are familiar with in the New Testament. In Galatians 5, it's, it's the fruit of the Spirit. In fact, as this passage itself continues on, it is love, it is obedience. As we'll see next week, Lord willing, in John 15, 9 to 17. What fruit is, is fruit is evidence of life. Fruit is everything that comes with the Christian life. And notice that fruit comes not by human effort, but by divine nurture. We are entirely dependent on God for salvation, and we are entirely dependent on God for sanctification. Fruit is the natural result of abiding in Christ. This is important for us to understand this morning. Your fruit is Christ's work, not yours. Your fruit is Christ's work, not yours. Your responsibility is not to bear fruit. As you look at Galatians 5, I think we are often told, you must bear fruit, and you must, but it's not your responsibility to bear that fruit. Your responsibility is to abide in Christ. And as you abide in Christ, he will work in you to produce fruit. You cannot produce holiness or love through your own effort. But as you abide in Christ, he will produce it in you. Your fruit is Christ's work. Very quickly here in verse 6, he, he, he talks again about these dead branches. Those who do not abide. Those who do abide in him produce much fruit. Without him, they can do nothing. With him, there's nothing they can't do. They produce fruit, and they produce abundant fruit. But if anyone does not abide in me, he's cast out as a branch that is withered, as a branch that is dead. They gather them and throw them into the fire that they are burned. It's the same picture we saw in the Old Testament. Branches that are producing bad fruit, branches that, are, that don't produce fruit, are good for nothing. They are only good with the heat that they produce very quickly as they are thrown in a fire. There's both a practical picture that fits the illustration here of dead branches being burned up. At the same time, there's an eschatological truth here. Those who abide in Christ will produce fruit. They will receive everlasting life. Those who do not abide in Christ will face the second death where they will be cast into the lake of fire for eternity. Brothers and sisters, in this, in this passage, there are only two options. There's only two branches. There's branches that are abiding and living and branches that are dying and burning. You either abide in Christ and find life or you don't abide in Christ and you face death. And this is not something to be taken lightly. I would plead with you this morning to search your heart and be honest with yourself. Are you abiding in Christ? Are you connected to the vine? Do you have life? And if you have any question at all, come forward. 
I wasn't going to talk about this. I don't want to embarrass my wife. Last night, I found her uh, middle school uh, journal, or diary, I guess, if you're a girl. And I was reading through it, and I came to a really neat passage the day that she got saved. She grew up in a Christian home. She thought she was saved. And she went to this um, meeting down in Kansas City, a youth rally. And Tom Farrell was speaking. And she realized that she had never truly placed her faith in Christ. She realized that she was not a living branch. She was not abiding in Christ. And she went forward that day and she got saved. She walked that aisle because it was more important to be sure than to have everyone think you were good. And if you are here this morning and you have any ounce of question in your mind, talk to me. And I would love nothing more than to point you through the word of God to Christ alone. Don't take a chance. After quickly touching on that in verse 6, he goes back to verse 7, back to these branches that are connected to him, that are in him. In verse, as, verse 15 unfold, as John 15 unfolds, we get a better idea of how to abide in Christ and how to abide in Christ well. Those who abide in Christ have Christ's words abiding in them. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. To abide in Christ is to have Christ's word abiding in you. The word of God is powerful. It is living and it is of vital importance to those who abide in Christ. You may say, well, well, how do I know if I'm abiding in Christ? How do I know if I'm abiding in Christ well this morning? How much of his word abides in you? In fact, notice also that, that your prayer life is connected. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. Your prayer life is connected to your devotional life. Powerful prayer, powerful prayer flows from purposeful Christian living. If you are filling your mind with the word of God, then your prayers, shaped and fashioned through that word, will flow with power and with purpose. To abide in Christ is to thrive in the Christian life. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, then notice the end goal. By this, as you abide in me, as my words abide in you, as you as you bring these requests as you ask your desire it shall be done for you by this this everything that we have seen by this abiding in Christ bearing fruit by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so you will be my disciples Christ's work in you glorifies God as you abide in Christ and as he bears fruit in you, you show yourself to be a disciple and you bring glory to God.
We began this morning. I asked two questions. What is the duty of disciple? And what is the secret to success in the Christian life? The answer, as we see in this passage, is this. The duty of a disciple is to bear fruit, and the secret to success in the Christian life is simply to abide in Christ. You can almost picture the disciples as they're walking through Jerusalem. Jesus, what are we supposed to do? You've promised us the Spirit. You've promised you're coming back for us. We know we're equipped, but what are we supposed to do? What can we do? What you can do is you must abide in me. Just abide in me. Brothers and sisters, you may be sitting here this morning and you may say, I want to do great things for God. What can I do? Abide in Christ. That's what you can do. Disciples bring glory to God by bearing much fruit, and disciples bear much fruit by abiding in Christ. The secret to the Christian life is that it's not about what you can do, but what Christ has done for you and what Christ is doing in you. So often we get frustrated in our Christian lives, do we not? Because we try to manufacture fruit ourselves. I'm trying to be loving. I'm trying to be gentle. I'm trying to be kind. I'm trying to, 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 to deny myself. I'm trying to not give in to temptation. I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm trying. Stop trying and abide in Christ. Stop trying to change yourself. Abide in Christ well. Live in his word. Be renewed and let Christ work in you. Abiding in Christ does not just put you in a good possession to then go and bear fruit in your own strength. Abiding in Christ is letting Christ bear fruit through you. If you abide in him, he will bear fruit in you. If there's one thing that you get from this message this morning, get this. Your fruit is Christ's work in you. It's not brought about by your effort. It's Christ's work in you. So what does that mean? What does that mean for me? Application, two points. First, rejoice in pruning. Recognize that pruning may be uncomfortable, pruning may hurt, but pruning is God's work in you. Pruning is God removing those things from you that need not be there. Those things from you that are holding you back, that are keeping you from producing fruit and from growing. And so recognize that and rejoice in that. Even as we see in James 1. Rejoice in the pruning hand of your good God. His pruning is not random. It is precise and it is purposeful and it is accomplishing what he wants in you. So rejoice in God's pruning hand. Secondly, secondly, abide in Christ. Live in the reality of who you are. Or to put it another way, and to put it down into one word, trust. Trust God. Live a life of faith. Trust him. That's what abiding looks like. Abiding looks like trusting. Day in and day out. Trust him. How can I do this well? How can I abide in Christ well? How can I live in the reality of who I am in Christ well? Read your Bible. 
Read your Bible so you know who you are, so you know what you have in Christ. But also read your Bible because it is through the Word of God that the Spirit of God works in you. Read your Bible. Do you want to do great things for God? Read your Bible. Don't overlook the centrality of the Word of God in the life of a believer. You need it. Secondly, pray. Pray. Powerful prayer flows from those who abide in Christ. Read your Bible and pray. You may say, well, you know, we've been here for, for 40 minutes. Couldn't you have just said those two simple things? Read your Bible and pray, and we could have gotten out here earlier. Maybe. But don't read your Bible and pray because you need to check it off, because it's pleasing to God, because I, I need to do this so God is happy with me. Read your Bible and pray because you are in Christ. Read your Bible and pray because you are abiding in Christ, because that is who you are. Not because that's what you need to do, because that is who you are. Read your Bible, pray, rejoice in pruning, abide in Christ.